Hello, everybody. I'm speaking today with Erica Gibson, who is a mom, a scientist, a farmer, a whole bunch of other things. Um, we're going to talk about some of those things and probably others. Hi, Erica. Hi, Rivka. Thanks for having me. Very happy to have you. Could you just introduce yourself for our listeners and, and let everyone know who you are? Sure. Um, my name is Erica Gibson. Uh, I am a scientist by training. I got my combined bachelor's and master's degrees in um, biotechnology with an emphasis on molecular biology in 2005, which seems like forever ago now. Um, I worked for a little while in the biotech industry and then um, while I was working in biotech, I, I was feeling really called to doing birth work and specifically I thought I wanted to be a midwife. So I started taking, or I took a doula training with you, actually. Um, and in 2012, I started practicing as a doula. Um, I had, once my son was born, I, I had a private doula practice for a number of years, um, both solo and with a partner. Um, and then in 2018, my family and I moved from Montreal to uh, the country outside of Montreal. And now we have a small farm and I'm actually not working. I stay home with my kids. We're homeschooling. Um, and so, yeah, I've done a little bit of a bunch of different things. <laughs> and yeah, so that's a, that's a bit about me. So how do you manage to, to weave together all of those strands? Because um, I know just from my own life, like you never actually stop doing something um, unless it was something you hated. Like if you had a job, you know, making cardboard boxes, obviously when you retire, you could forget about it. But but with with those of us that are lucky enough to do things that we're interested in, how do you how do you weave together all the all the those different strands? Um, yeah, I would say it hasn't always been easy. I think that um, <clears throat> while while I was working in biotech, I didn't always feel that I fit in completely there. Um, just with the a lot of the mindset and the, um, I don't know, the one thing that was really difficult for me when I was working in biotech, it was the amount of plastic waste, for example, that we were generating every day doing basic research. Um, and just uh, being curious and having a bunch of questions around you know, health and, and what's the best way to do things. Uh, I think the particular laboratories that I was in, I didn't always feel completely like I fit in. And then now with birth work, you know, I kind of, I felt like I had found my people, but um, I think since the pandemic, it's been interesting because <clears throat> I find that uh, I have really leaned into my scientific training and my analytical skills um, to kind of make sense of what was going on. And I found that a lot of people that I had surrounded myself kind of took a hard right the other direction um, in completely rejecting uh, science or rejecting uh, expertise or authority when it came to scientific matters. And I was confused by that a little bit. So, you know, I would say it hasn't always been easy to kind of weave those parts of my life together, but at the same time, like I can only do what I can do. Right. And it's just my life and I'm just living it, you know, so 
So uh, it was interesting when you said about the plastic waste because I'd never really thought of research in that way just because um, um, growing up with a biologist father ba back in the back in the olden days, I don't remember there being plastic around the labs. There was like, well, other stuff. Um, but now it's almost like the whole world has become that laboratory. Like everywhere you go, you see the damn plastic masks mm -hmm. and then those rapid tests they were giving out, they're full of plastic too. I don't know where all that stuff has gone. We actually found a little testing swab uh, on one of the tables in the cafe, which is kind of gross. <laughs> that is gross. <laughs> yeah, super gross. Try working in a cafe. It's rather gross at times. So, um, so how do you think your background as a scientist and that type of education and worldview affected your life as a mother? I mean, starting even with pregnancy and, and, and birth and now how you're, how you're approaching, you know, being a mother? Um, yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I think like most moms during pregnancy leading up to the birth, I had a bit of anxiety about <clears throat> all of the testing and all of the, you know, the, just the things that happen during pregnancy and wondering like, what's the best way to do this? Or what's the best way to do that? Or should I do this? Or should I do that? And um, <clears throat> I actually made the conscious decision during my pregnancy to, to not do so much research in terms of um looking at data and and trying to figure out the best decision data wise um i i did a little bit but i think i think i really it actually i i went the other direction and just really sank into my own you know intuition and my own way of being a mother um and I mean I can't I can't separate my my the different hats that I wear like I can't separate the doula side of my life or the midwife side of my life or the the farming side of my life from my parenting like it's it's all there so um yeah it's funny because actually we're we're homeschooling right now and uh I actually find science is the subject that I'm struggling with the most with my kids. And I think it's because we're not yet into the things that, that are most interesting for me. <laughs> so right. it's, it's like less interesting for them to sometimes, you know, doing the, I don't know, physics and chemistry and those kinds of things. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think I can ever completely, separate those things and I, I it's it's hard for me to say how how I'm being influenced by my scientific background like I, it's something I actually haven't quite thought about before um well I think uh I think you touched on that though when you talked about the the um the divergence of 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 your community and and yourself when it came to the pandemic and reactions towards it so, um, you know, how do you look at it if, if, if a child has uh, something or other? Are you going to go right away to, um, to more alternative methods of healing? Or are you going to go through in a scientific way to figure out what, um, what the best course of action will be um, up to and including you know, hospitals and, and all of the reasonably extreme types of healing that they provide. And, and, and I think you, you just touched on one thing when you said that you sank more into your intuition when you were pregnant. And it's, it's so frustrating to me that, that science has become now something that is completely, um, 
well, everyone's blathering on about non-binary and everything, but in this, at the same time, everyone is so binary kind of oriented that there has to be intuition on the one hand and science on the other, but great science is born out of intuition. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, and the, the flip side of that too is, uh, intuition is not always correct, right? Like we, we live in an increasingly complex world and the, uh, our gut instincts were developed in, in an environment that's completely different than the environment in which we live now, right? And the, uh, our senses of intuition kept us safe in an environment that was completely different than it is now. And sometimes decisions that don't necessarily seem intuitive uh, are actually the correct decision. Um, and that's where, you know, facts and data come come in. Um, so yeah, like I, we need both. And I don't think that you can be a good scientist or you're not doing great science if you're not uh, keeping a finger on the pulse of your intuition. And at the same time, I don't, I think it's just magical thinking to think that if you just tap into your tuition, you will make the correct decision all of the time. Right. And that, that, that argument comes out so much for me in, in midwifery. You know, I'm not the type of midwife and never have been the type of midwife that just relies on, you know, my sixth sense. But at the same time, when I'm teaching um, women who want to work in the birth uh, environment, the sixth sense is one of the senses that we that we that we try and um, fine tune and that we rely on as much as we can. Yeah, I mean, I I also really felt that during birth work, um, like. Uh, I think sometimes midwives and doulas have this um, bias against doctors in the hospital for good reason, because women haven't been getting optimal care in in the hospital or in many hospitals most of the time, I would say. Um, and I think there there is this aspect of intuition that's really valuable and really important. I think when you sit with a woman through an entire labor um, or a person who's laboring <laughs> through their entire labor, uh, you do develop a sense for how things are going, right? Like you, you can kind of tell, like I could tell most of the time, generally, how open a woman's cervix was, for example, just by, I don't know, like a spidey sense, like you could just take this global picture of everything that was going on, and you just had a feeling of how things were going. And I do think that that is a really important tool. And I think that the, what is missing a lot of times in the way that medical care is currently practiced is that uh, nurses and doctors in particular, they, the system in which they work is not set up for them to uh, have contact with their patients on a more intimate basis, right? Like they're not, they're not sitting with you the entire time that you're in labor. And so they're not seeing these subtle changes that are going on and they're not developing that, that that sixth sense um, to the same extent that that doulas and midwives are. Um, and so I think that is sort of a, the root of some of the discontent that I see from the, the, the I, I hate to use the term natural birth, but like the, the birth other than what's offered in the hospital world, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a really complex question, and I think that uh, that unfortunately, I would say that uh, that the 
that the registered and and um and kind of school university trained midwives that are working within the um medical system are now in danger of losing that because of the control um you know if you're constantly having to do paperwork then you're not going to have that quiet moment to 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 even have a uh a, to even have the quietness to be able to intuit anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I remember there was a study years ago, 15 years ago, there was this awfully unethical study done at one of the hospitals here that was a, they were proposing some uh, software program that could predict um, shoulder dystocia. So they um, they went in and they actually did a clinical study that was not uh, revealed to the patients um, that basically put every first-time mother through this software thing, and um, if she if she um, if she scored high on the risk of shoulder dystocia, then a C-section was uh, suggested and recommended and often done. And I was working with people two years after that that had had these unnecessary C-sections, and many of them were pretty traumatized. But I went to the final kind of um, uh, symposium thing where the university where the university and the hospital were deciding whether they were going to incorporate the software into their practice. And one of the head OBGYNs, who's really not very liked because he makes rather inappropriate jokes, and I'm not talking about sexual jokes, that that's, mm-hmm. but just like, whatever, just his sense of humor is a little not appreciated by some people. Um, so uh, he stood up and he said, every single one of the women that this software told me to perform a C-section on went ahead and either had a vaginal birth or had a C-section for some other reason during labor. I know, I can feel with my intuition when something is is about to go south mm-hmm. and and that's what I rely on. And I was really, just really kind of blown away that a but he actually even said that. And then I realized, yeah, you do practice like that. Like you might have stupid jokes and not the greatest bedside manner, but, you know, there's a sensitivity to the way that he works that shows that he never did get rid of that. And right. even working in a system where it's really um, looked down upon, he, he continued to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I mean, two things. One, I think that that is this is an example of science working also, right? Because we are not using this, this computer algorithm today, right? Like good science is like, Hey, we have this idea. Let's see if it might help. And when they decided that it didn't help, they didn't use the, the thing. Like when science is actually working, right? It, it, it works well. The problem is when we stop looking at the science and we just start pushing, you know, an agenda for one reason or another that is not grounded in data or right. Like it's, it's not evidence-based that's, that's when we run into to trouble. But the second thing I wanted to say is like, I do see a difference also between um, older physicians and younger ones. And I don't know if in terms of uh, being able to tap into an intuition. Um, but I, I've thought often about how how residency is run for most med students, right? And it's this um, completely crazy time where the student is being taught to completely disregard their own bodies, right? And their own needs, they're working 24 hour shifts, like multiple 24 hour shifts in a week. And they're just like so exhausted that they can't even function or think straight. And, and to me, it's like, how, how can we ask these people who to make embodied decisions, right? Cause to me, intuition is a very embodied um, practice, right? How can we ask them to be making good embodied decisions when they're completely being, on the other hand, being asked to deny their bodies, right? Or to, 
to like check out because they're they're not being supported to rest well and to to recuperate and and all these other things. Absolutely. Uh, I just read a really good book about that. It's called We Are All Perfectly Fine. And it's written by a physician who 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 experienced severe burnout and now works in the field of uh, of of you know helping people through that. Um, and yeah, they're 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 taught to they're taught to ignore themselves and their own needs. So so there's of course the the whole the whole sixth sense is probably going to just wither. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I need to make it perfectly clear that I'm not anti-physician or anti-nurse or anti-hospital or anti-Western medicine. You know, like, I think it's really easy, especially for doulas, you know, who have very little skin in the game, right, to armchair quarterback what's going on in a hospital room. And that's not to say that our uh, our input is not valuable because it absolutely is. And because because we are sitting with these families, like we know these families for a long period of time, usually before they go into the hospital and we're sitting, we were sitting with them at labor at home before they got to the hospital and all of these things. Like we do have valuable knowledge, but like at the end of the day, you know, our, our livelihoods are not on the line. Our medical license is not on the line. You know, all of these things are not on the line. And I think that, uh, because doctors have so much more risk involved than we do, right? Like they're, they're, they're making decisions in uh, an environment that's different from the environment in which doula specifically are making decisions, right? Um, and yeah, I, I just want to well, be clear. It's a, it's a much more repressive environment that any physician is working yeah. in. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, a doula can go into a hospital room, and I have, you know, been, you know, spoken at not so kindly by a nurse or doctor, but it's not like I could care because I'm being privately paid by my, by the family I'm working with. So it's, it's, yeah, it's very, very different. At the same time, I'm thinking back about some of the women that I worked with. um, And okay. So, so the problem for me is here and here it is right, right, right here. Simple. And, I I just one little story. I was with a I was a, a doula for a woman who was having a her baby at the um, at a birthing center, and there was a actually um, like reasonably historical. What I mean is there was a condition that she had that went back a little bit in the pregnancy that wasn't picked up by anyone, and it was affecting the labor. So we had to transfer to the hospital. When we got to the hospital, because we needed this me- this medical care, like we needed to go a level up, there was no question that that wasn't what was needed. She needed certain medications that were only available in the hospital. All of the expertise and the um, the 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 kind of care that the medical establishment could have provided was. Um, was I don't know clouded by a certain mm-hmm. um, stigma because she had originally you know gone to the birthing center and was being brought in by a midwife, so she was actually not cared for very well in the beginning. Right, and I think I think that in particular is a is a training problem, right? Like I think I think that if if we could have uh, residents and doctors and doulas and midwives like doing internships or training, you know, within the different levels of care. I, um, how do I put this? Like I had a meditation, meditation teacher one time tell me that um, we, 
we hate what we don't know or we can't like if there is intimacy between two people or between two groups of people that it's impossible to do violence from uh, from one group to the other right i'm i'm not phrasing that very well but like i think it's easy for doctors to badmouth midwives or for midwives to badmouth doctors because there there is a lack of intimacy there with the uh, the problems that each particular group is facing right like I could empathize with um, with a doctor who has gone through so much training and again this like really horrible residency experience and they're overworked and they're exhausted. And they're getting these patients from what they see as undertrained professionals, right? And the patient has problems. I can I I can empathize with the fact that they they would be like, oh, that person wouldn't have had this problem if they were in medical care, right? And I can also empathize with the midwife who has tons of valuable expertise and knowledge that's not being respected, right? And who, particularly here in Quebec, their purview, are their uh, realm of sphere of influence are births that are uncomplicated, right? And and it's in a perfect world, somebody who needed to be bumped up to a higher level of care should be able to do so easily, right? Like that midwife was practicing within her... Um, within her scope, right? Like I'm, I'm working with uncomplicated birth. This is now become complicated. I need to bump it up to a higher level of care and they should be able to do so easily. Right. And I I can also empathize with that person who's then not being taken seriously or being respected. And I, I think that the answer to that is to, to have, uh, these people working side by side and training side by side to understand, you know, to demystify the, the, the arenas in which they're making decisions, right. And the actual challenges that they're facing and the work that they're doing, because I guarantee you that most doctors would have a great deal of respect for these midwives if they saw, um, how they were practicing and they uh, they saw that if a midwife is comfortable to do so and it's easy to do so, like they have no problem referring up to a higher level of care, a higher level being just like more care than a midwife is able to provide, right? Um, and so, and the same, the other direction, like I think, I don't know. I I really think that um, having people train side by side, at least for part like internships or whatever, would would make things safer for everybody and and foster understanding. Right. But then on the other hand, we are living in a world that's more and more and more polarized. And so Mm -hmm. the question. um, And with kind of valid reason like it saddens me deeply to see that on the one hand um midwives the way i understand the word are being categorized once again you know we're going back to the to the medieval times um they're being characterized once again as uneducated um Mm -hmm. magic bound um reasonably dirty and dangerous um kind of witches on the one hand, and then on the other hand, um, midwives that are that are practicing and being allowed to practice have become uh, very restricted. They're very, very restricted. They have to do a lot of paperwork. They have to do a lot of tests. They're very fear-bound. Um, their regulations are getting smaller and smaller and smaller pretty much every month. Mm-hmm. So, um, so... I think there's a great deal of healing that has to um, take place. And 
And I don't know where it's going to start because um, that polarization, obviously, as you know, as, as we both know, as everyone knows, really, it really increased in a, in a very radical way through the pandemic. And I want to get to talking specifically about um, the science about that uh, in a second. But I don't know, do you have anything to add about the, that polarization? I mean, you've experienced in, it in your life over the past two years, as have I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, uh, the extreme polarization that we're experiencing is a function of, uh, the internet (laughs) and social media and just our access to information, right? Like we're so inundated, with information that we almost like can't process it right and so we kind of all segregate into these little camps that make us feel comfortable um i think about this a lot actually this is kind of going off topic but how the internet was supposed to be this this great equalizer right if if everybody could have access to data and everybody could have access to the information you know, then the world would be a healthier, happier, safer place, right? And um, like I think about gatekeepers of information, right? And um, the problem that I see is like when you completely eliminate the gatekeepers, people who are untrained or who don't fully understand how to how to analyze data or how to analyze that information, again, are making uh, these intuitive decisions that may seem right on a gut level, but are actually not correct when when, when you analyze the data correctly, right? Um, and I hate to get into like the correct way and the not correct way, right? Like there are multiple factors that we use to make decisions, but like, uh, like, I don't know, I'm still trying to work out for myself whether it has actually been a good thing for everyone to have so much access to information and to then foster distrust of the people who are trained to actually uh, analyze and understand that information. So that leads me a little bit into my next uh, kind of um, wondering here, which is the whole idea of experts. And I've been... um, I've been talking to uh, some people that have been uh, giving birth on their own um, without a midwife, without anyone present except, you know, maybe a, a family member or their partner or someone. And, and, and there is a deep, deep mistrust of having anyone present who knows any more about the birth process than they themselves do because of the um because of the abuse of power that 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 level of of authority can bring and does bring a lot of the time so mm-hmm. so i mean for example the reason why i quit doula work was because i became more knowledgeable than most of the residents that were in there and i knew that that was creating um, a really difficult vibe in the birth room, and I wanted to get out of that. I didn't want to have a, you know, competitive vibe happening, uh, where people were doing dangerous things just to prove to me that they were, you know, better than me or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I, I feel there must be a way that, that that for example, someone like me you know, with the knowledge that I have and the experience that I have and the understanding that I have could be present at a birth without um, without everyone feeling oppressed. And and that's the problem that everyone's having with with experts and expertise and mm-hmm. and knowledge in general, the way that we've understood it. Yeah, 
I mean, I, I see this is, this touches a little bit on, uh, something that I, I noticed really came up during the pandemic was this, uh, this kind of tension between, uh, managing something on a, a global scale, like on a public health scale. So managing like populations of people, right. And managing, uh, an individual person that's in front of you because there's always trade-offs, right? Like what we all want is to be an individual and have individualized care. Right. But, um, I think the systems around healthcare are more concerned about, you know, reducing harm on a global scale and the way that they implement policies is on a global scale, right? Like they, they, they have to, they have to create kind of these systems on a global scale. So for example, I think all of us, when we go to the hospital, we want to make sure that the doctor that we're seeing has a certain standard of education, right? Like, I don't want somebody cutting open my body if they if they didn't have a certain level of education, a certain standard of education, right? But, like, it's really hard, I think, on a uh, it it's it's really hard to create these standards that then don't become uh, boxes, right? <laughs> and I think Quebec in particular, this is one of the most bureaucratic places i've I've ever seen. Like the bureaucracy in Quebec is is mind blowing. But I, you know, I know somebody, for example, she's a nurse and she was telling me about this doctor that she works with who's from Nigeria originally. And he speaks like six or seven different languages fluently, including Mandarin. Um, and he, he did all of his training in the UK um, and then moved to Sherbrooke, I want to say. And uh, when he came here, like he was already a practicing doctor in the UK Um it was easier for him to completely redo his medical education in Quebec, like go through the whole thing all over again, than to try to get equivalency and get licensed as a doctor here. And, you know, so like these systems that we've put in place to try to keep people safe, like we want to make sure foreign doctors who are coming have a certain standard of education and we want to ensure midwives have a certain standard, you know, those systems are, are actually making it harder for us to get good care. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I don't, I, because I, I don't think that completely doing away with regulation or doing away with um, any sort of standard at all is the right answer. But I, you know, I also, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I just don't know what the answer to that is. <laughs> and the, the problem isn't just uh, like down from the top, mm-hmm. you know, the problem is also, um, like throughout the pandemic, at the beginning, I started reading all the literature and stuff like that, and then I, and then I completely stopped. And now I, I don't because, you know, I'm actually trained as a midwife. Um, I originally started being interested in in the the human body way back when I started doing, um, intensive first aid training when I was twelve and. I was a candy striper and like I've been in the medical kind of field on the periphery for years and years. I trained as a midwife. I know how the female body works, but I know nothing about how viruses mutate, how it affects the body, what any of these things are. And I don't want to pretend I do. And I think that's one of the problems is that 
as you said, the social media and the internet has provided all sorts of pseudo-scientific studies or even proper scientific studies that people can grab on. And then they just fly with it, but they don't have the training or the background or the scientific knowledge. They're just, well, I know that numbers are this and that and number this number and that number. For me, the the best the best piece of information I got out about the virus was from an actual scientist who came into my cafe. It was my son who's an engineer, and he came into my cafe and said, well, we don't actually know. Uh, fluid mechanics is the most complicated field, he, and um, we don't actually know how things fly through the air be because it seems to be quite random, but I suggest you get a HEPA filter in your cafe. Mm -hmm. and and that that actually uh, there there haven't even been any studies done on it but um there've been kind of in in situ results that have shown that it's that it's been effectively reducing the number of the of the virus mo molecules or whatever they are that that are flying around in the air and that's the only way that I've chosen to understand it um but so many other people are you know, any everyone's an expert. So it's on the on the top level there aren't enough experts. Mm -hmm. And then on the bottom level there are all sorts of you know, everyone knows just as much as everyone else says this kind of weird democratization of knowledge that isn't really knowledge. Yeah. I find like that's where good science communication comes in. Um, because like I think I think the people that are doing the really great work are the science communicators that are showing, you know, why this study was good or why this study was not so good. Um, and, and really kind of breaking things down just in, in that sense, because I think, yeah, most people don't understand like what, what makes a good study, what makes a bad study. You know, if you, if you, if you're just following 25 people, <laughs> like, and I mean, in a study with just 25 people and it's not, it's not um, blinded or controlled in any way, like the information that you get out of that study is not great information, right? Um, and so for me, I found um, several science communicators on Instagram, which is the main social media uh, platform that I use. Um, and like, I, I think that they were doing really great work to demystify a lot of these questions that people have, like, why, why should I believe this? Or should I not believe that? you know, um, we like one of them is we can know things, right? We, we can that when science is working, right? We, we ask a question and we can, we try to control as many factors as we can to make sure that, uh, the answer that we're getting to that question is actually the answer that, that, um, is, how do I put this? Like, we eliminate all the confounding variables, right? So that we know that the effect that we're seeing is based on the thing that we are questioning. But there's so many other variables that go into it and so many other political kind of and ego and profit-driven variables that are going into science these days and probably always have. I mean, yes and no at the same time. Like, I did used to work in the pharmaceutical industry. And the biggest beef that I had was, like, the the company I was working for was doing what's called drug repositioning. So we, we would partner with, like, Pfizer and Eli Lilly and all of these big pharmaceutical companies. And we would take... Um, drugs that they had put through various clinical trials that they pulled for one reason or another. And usually it was because there was already another drug on the market that was more effective at doing what this drug was supposed to do than that drug. And so they knew like there wouldn't be really a market for it. 
right? And so we would then run a whole bunch of different tests on the drug to see like what other what other um, effects could this drug be having in the body? Because it's already gone through the the uh, the preliminary clinical trials, so we know that the drug is safe, right? We know that people can take it and they're they're not going to be injured by this drug, um, and and see if we can reposition this drug into another disease. So, for example, Viagra is the the biggest example of a reposition drug. It was originally developed as a heart medication, but it had this side effect of, of giving men erections. <laughs> and so it now is one of the top selling drugs of all time, right? Wow. That's so, so something about our culture. Right. <laughs> but for me, what was frustrating is I we had drugs that were active and could be very useful, probably, supposedly, for a certain disease set, but maybe that disease was very rare, yeah. right? And and the company, the amount of money that it would take for that company to take that drug to market and to do all of the, the testing and all of the, you know, that just the stuff, the regulatory stuff that it takes to take a drug to market, like it would be almost impossible for them to recoup that cost because the number of people that would be taking that drug is so small. And you can't, you know, there are drugs that cost $50,000 a dose, yeah. right? But like, you know, in the end, you can't charge $100,000 or $200,000 a dose for a drug, Right. Like, so, I mean, I do hear there is a lot of complaint about pharmaceutical companies being being profit motivated and all of these things, but they're a business just like any other business. And I think that sometimes people forget that, like, it's not their motive to like to harm us. Right. Or to like they want to have drugs come out that are useful and good and, they, you know, um, so I think a lot of the profit motivation comes to more in stuff that's not coming to market because it wouldn't be profitable. Well, exactly. And that's kind of what I had uh, in the back of my mind that, that, uh, that's driving. There's a lot of research done in, 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 in the world that never goes anywhere. And the results are probably ignored because they're not, uh, they're not useful. Mm -hmm. So or they are useful. It's just that, you know, we live, the un, unfortunate reality is we live in the capitalist system, right? And so most of our decisions have to be made within that framework. And I mean, I getting back to the conversation about the medical system and midwifery and all of that stuff, like part of the problem we have is that we do live within a capitalist system. And that, that, influences the way that people make decisions and it isn't always for the 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 best so i'm going to move right over into actual abcs of of just trying to glean some really simple understanding from you mm -hmm. um because when i think about the the um the virus that we're dealing with right now, I imagine these little tiny things floating through the air. Um, but, and then I know somehow in my kind of like common man brain that it's a, that it's somehow code, it's genetic code or it takes over my genetic code. So please explain to me, what is a virus? <laughs> yeah. So viruses are really interesting. Um, I think, most people have in mind like microbes, like viruses and bacteria or these little things. And it's true, but viruses and bacteria are completely separate. So bacteria are little microbes that are alive. Like they have a metabolism. They burn nutrients just like a human would. Um, they're kind of like self-sustaining little units, right? 
a virus is more like a little tiny uh, machine. It's not alive. It doesn't have a metabolism. Um, it's not. It's not growing or dividing in the sense of like a, a bacteria would divide, right? What viruses do is uh, so. Uh, a simple explanation is a virus is just like a protein coat with some genetic material inside. And sometimes that genetic material is DNA and sometimes it's RNA. And DNA and RNA are very similar. Uh, they, like we all know, we think of DNA as this uh, double helix spiral, right? Which is basically a sugar backbone with these amino acids. I mean, um, nucleic acids hanging off the, the end. Sorry, my biology is like 20 years behind me, so sometimes my terminology is not always correct. But um, the sugar backbone between DNA and RNA is slightly different, and RNA uses um, different uh, nucleotides, basically. So um, a virus can have either DNA or RNA as its, as its uh, genetic component inside this protein capsule, basically. And what, what they do is they take their protein capsid or their protein coat will attach to a cell and their nucleic acid gets injected into the cell. Um, and once that nucleic acid is in the cell, uh, the cell's own machinery that it uses to translate its own nucleic acids. So I think maybe I should take a step back. Nucleic acids are just blueprints for protein, right? DNA is just a code that tells us how to make protein, different kinds of protein. So our genes are just codes for different proteins in our body and the same for RNA. So we have machinery within our cells to, to uh, it's called translation, translate the code in the DNA or RNA to, to a protein. And so once this nucleic acid from the virus is inside our cells, it itself is read by our own machinery and then is turned into proteins the various proteins of the virus itself. And then those proteins uh, and, and the nucleic acids are also copied. And once you have tons and tons and tons of this protein and nucleic acid, they reassemble into virus until there gets to be so many within the cell that the cell bursts. And then these new viral particles go out and reinfect more cells around them, which make more viral particles, and so on and so forth. Okay, so so basically what makes us sick is our uh, body's reaction to the cells bursting? Yes, and to the viruses themselves, right? Because we, we have, we have our, our immune system kind of has two separate components. It has the innate immune component, which recognizes um, kind of, common foreign motifs they're called like foreign uh bits of of protein and things that like normally wouldn't occur in our body and that's kind of like the first signal that hey something's wrong right and then we have like the innate immunity so uh the the antibodies and things t cells and b cells that we have that um that will generate an, uh, a memory response and then produce antibodies once we see the same uh, foreign intruder again. Okay, so then, so walk me through how that would work. Let's say, let's say, um, let's say someone has just had COVID, and and so they still have that. Their body still have the memory of that particular code. Um, so how, how would that work? How does the body destroy it when it, when it gets in? Just, sorry. So the question is, how do we, how does the body attack COVID? Or, or any virus, let's say any virus that we have immunity to, 
or if we have a really strong immune system, I'm assuming that we don't even have previous immunity. Mm-hmm. How, how does it get rid of it if it's not even alive? Yeah. So, okay. I'm going to preface this with the, I, my, I took immunobiology like 20 years ago, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so I'm, my, my understanding of the specific mechanics is very rusty and old. <laughs> okay. I'm just going to preface that. Um, but, uh, we, we have multiple mechanisms like to, to recognize our entire immune system is based on recognizing things that are not self, right? We, we go through an entire process when we're even in utero, I believe, um, to train our immune system to recognize what belongs here, right? It's like our immune system goes through and scans everything and says, boop, okay, this is me, this is me, this is me, right? So that when we are born and we're thrust out into the world, um, when the immune system is scanning, so for example, we have uh, within our lymph nodes and within our um, blood and and different places in our body, we have cells whose job it is is just to kind of sample the environment, right? They're just like taking up stuff, chewing it up, and then presenting these chewed up bits of stuff onto the surface of the cell. They're called dendritic cells, right? Um, and then we have other cells. T cells mostly that come and scan like boop. Okay. Yeah. That's me. Boop. That's me. Right. And then at some point, if we have a viral infection, these like little bits of protein and things that have been chewed up are going to be presented. The, the T cells going to scan and be like, uh Oh, wait a minute. That's not me. Right. That's something that doesn't belong here. And then that starts an entire cascade of a whole bunch of things. Like immunobiology is incredibly complex. We have a whole bunch of different um, aspects or arms of the, the immune response. Like it's not something that I could do justice in, in the little time that we have here today. But basically, we have a way of recognizing what belongs and what doesn't. And then um, we have kind of things that are uh, cells and responses that are more like an immediate response that that are there kind of like the first responders, right? Yeah. And then those that come a bit later and that are a bit more specific and more strong and then uh, are there to create an immune memory so that if we see the same invader again, we can um, kind of call in the cavalry quicker and eliminate the problem more quickly and often before symptoms show up or, you know, when symptoms are still relatively mild. So, so some viruses can actually be destroyed in the body then? Yes. And how does all, that- all, all viruses are destroyed in the body pretty much like, I I mean, other than like, like, uh, but I know that there are some that live in the body that need medication, uh, like, like HIV, HIV specifically. And, yeah. And, and HIV is just a problem of uh, it being able to hide out in the body. Like yeah. when it's revealed to the body, the body does destroy it. It's just not able to completely eliminate it. Okay. Right. So, so basically just let me just from a, for a, a, a in a kind of like a story fashion, what I'm going to say is, this 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 let's say piece of code this virus comes into our body however however it comes in and then our body's process of fighting that uh that piece of code is us getting sick so we'll either get a cough or we'll get a whatever the symptoms are of whichever virus it is that is actually the body's part of the body's process of eliminating this foreign matter Yes. 
Okay. Okay. So makes- inflammation, for example, is is the body's uh, um, like it. The part of the reason that we cough, for example, is that we produce more mucus to try to trap um, whatever is there, so that the 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 immune cells that we have that come and chew up the virus can come and chew up the virus, right? Like, um, and the inflammation that we have is is the body's way of um, kind of loosening the gaps within our blood vessels and things so that these immune cells that normally are just circulating in our blood can invade into the tissue to do the work that they need to do. So um, we, we know that bacteria are very useful to us. We have thousands of bacteria that live in our bodies. And um, if we didn't have them, we would have serious, for example, digestive problems and things like that. But in my understanding, viruses are never our friends. Um, yeah, I, there, I, I'm hesitant to say that, but like, we don't, we don't have a symbiotic relationship, let's say with viruses that we have with, with bacteria. So what a, could a virus actually adapt to a host and, 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 and become symbiotic? Like, could it, could a milder form of, let's say, the COVID virus maybe be living in, for example, my body and and be preventing me from getting really sick? Um, I, no, no, no. no. Okay. This is so interesting, and it's so interesting. So on two levels, and I, I do know that we have to end this this interesting chat, but on two levels, one is that you've, you've described this thing in very military terms, (laughs) you know, it's invading and defense and, and I don't know of any other way that you can describe it, but I'm just saying that's an interesting part just right there. Can I say something about that? Absolutely. Yeah. Because, because that is the way that we're taught in school to speak about this, like that it's almost everyone learns it that way, but it isn't, It's like, if there's one thing that I've learned is that um, health is really an ecology similar to, you know, the ecology that we normally think of, like the earth and the various ecosystems, right? Our body is also an ecosystem, right? And so when we talk about bacteria invading or viruses invading like it's not actually true that that is what's going on right it's it's like when when we get a bacterial infection for an example it's often because for some reason or other like our our defenses for lack of a better term but the the levels of certain things within our bodies that that help keep these bacteria at bay um, were able to be overcome by this bacteria and it was able to start to proliferate and and you know get gain a foothold within this ecosystem whereas before it couldn't right so like i i I don't totally agree with using the military terminology. I use it because that's what I learned. But in reality, we are an ecosystem. I believe that we're always walking a spiral between um, between wellness and sickness, right? We're always there. There's, I think people believe that there's some ideal world where we never get sick. And that's not true. Like we're always going to be walking the spiral between wellness and sickness, and, and like we, yeah, anyway. I think that, um, I think we need to create a new language because I, 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 I completely understand what you're talking about. And it's fascinating to me that we don't actually have a language where we can talk about how a virus or a bacteria or anything even would come into our bodies and then leave. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then the second thing is these viruses are mind blowing. Like, why would there even exist just a piece of code that comes in and 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 screws around in our bodies? Like, there's definitely something that we're going to discover one day. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and it, like, if you think viruses are fascinating, like prions oh, are even more fascinating. I right? love like, prions. My family's so bored with prions because I go on and on about them. <laughs> so, I mean, for people who don't know what prions are, they are they're they're protein. Like um, when we talk about uh, BSE or mad cow disease, that it mad cow disease is not caused by a microbe, by a virus or a bacteria. It's caused by a protein itself that's misfolded. And is incredibly and can can cause other proteins to misfold and is incredibly resistant. Like you can't you can't deactivate it by autoclaving your tools, for example. You can't deactivate it by heat. Normally proteins are very, very sensitive to heat. So once you have this misfolded protein and and become quote unquote infected by this misfolded protein, that protein can go into your body and cause other proteins to misfold and they aggregate in your brain and cause you to have um, kind of like plaques in your brain, similar to some of these other neurodegenerative diseases. So yeah, like, I mean, a virus at least replicates through um, a a genetic pathway similar to most other living organisms that we know about, but prions are just, it's just a protein. There's no genetic component at all. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And I, I really think that one of our jobs, Erica, is to figure out that a, a language where we can talk about it that isn't, um, that isn't exploitative, that is just, mm based in, in, in the reality that we, that we're living in as humans, as, as bodies, instead of putting a, a military metaphor over it, mm-hmm. uh, because that military metaphor, I mean, we know that uh, it's used all the time in, in, in the birth world as well. So, mm-hmm. okay. Thank you very much. A whole other episode at some point about the language of science. <laughs> But for now, I'll let you get on with your day. Um, I'm going to ask you the final question that I ask everyone. If you had one word to leave our listeners with for today, what would that be? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, I would have to say intimacy. I know I used that word earlier. Um, and it, I don't mean it in in the sense that we normally think of like romantic intimacy. I, I really mean it in uh, being not separate from someone else or not separate from the environment in which you live, right? So like I, I really think that the more that we can have intimacy with our environment, with our the people that surround us within our communities, right? Like the 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 better off we'll all be thank you for that thank you thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day and um, thank you for your insight oh thank you Rivka 